morning, Wisconsin, and welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin podcast. I will be your hostess with the mostest today. I'm Jorna Taylor, and I'm a nonprofit consultant here in Wisconsin. And unfortunately, your regular host, Matt Brusky, is at home ill today uh, with some broken ribs. So everybody, sign a sympathy card and send it to Matt. Um, hopefully, he'll be back next week, but or maybe not, because I kind of like hosting. <laughs> so uh, today we do have, however... Uh, Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action, here in our studio. Good morning, Jorna. Good morning, Robert. And we are thrilled to be joined by phone with Sachin Chada, who is the Director of the Fair Elections Project, who is going to talk to you all and give some updates on the redistricting project. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for uh, having me, Jorna and Robert. Well, thank you for joining us, Sachin. So uh, we're going to kick it off with Sachin and the redistricting lawsuit that is currently moving through the courts. A three-judge panel on Thursday has actually refused to end a challenge to state legislative redistricting, and it's going to go to trial in the end of May. And so, Sachin, this is, this is pretty big news here for Wisconsin and could have some national implications. You want to start by giving us an update? Sure. Uh, it's great news in Wisconsin. It's great news for the country because this is so far the most successful challenge to partisan gerrymandering that we've seen in, in about 30 years. Uh, what happened on Thursday is that the federal panel that this case is being heard by, it's a three-judge panel from all across the upper Midwest, uh, decided that the state's move to end the case prematurely without having a trial uh, should be rejected. And instead, we are going to have a trial starting on May 24th. Uh, in Madison. And uh, what they're going to hear is whether or not the facts uh, on the ground here in Wisconsin should lead to the conclusion that uh, the state uh, violated the Constitution and the rights of Wisconsin voters when they imposed uh, the maps uh, in redistricting in 2011. Uh, Those are the maps that we've lived under for two state legislative elections so far in 2012 and 2014. And what we've found is that Uh, There's a tremendous bias in favor of the Republican uh, Party uh, in those maps, and that the Republican Party can convert their votes into seats at a much higher rate uh, than Democrats can. And we can kind of show some math, and we've proposed a constitutional test, a three-part test, uh, that would uh, force the state then to draw essentially uh, maps that treat both parties more symmetrically uh, treat voters more fairly uh, and move us towards uh, a democracy that actually represents the people's will, uh, which we don't have here in Wisconsin today. So, Sachin, how did this happen? How did we get <laughs> how did we get such biased maps? Were there just errors in how they were drawn? Well, it was very intentional, as the court has described uh, in a couple of different cases. In, a, in an earlier uh, case that challenged uh, the map. Uh, on uh, the basis of uh, equal protection and, and the Voting Rights Act violations that was called the Baldus case. And then in the discussion that happened in the uh, discovery and argument phases we've had in this case so far, our case was filed in July. Uh, but what's really clear and is in the federal trial court record and has been described in news reports is that the Republicans used an excessively secretive process, uh, a very corrupt process, in which uh, the maps were drawn uh, with as much uh, uh, lack of transparency as they could muster. Uh, they were drawn actually in a law office across the street from the Capitol that in order to enter the room uh, to see the maps that were being drafted and to be in the conversation, you had to sign 
secrecy agreements, and even Republican legislators weren't allowed to see the whole map. They were only allowed to see their own district, um, and they had to sign a secrecy agreement to do that. And so it was a very corrupt and secretive process, and they were uh, chastised by the federal court a number of times. In fact, the law firm they used was actually fined by the federal court in, in, in the earlier case. And so, um, you know, what they did is they baked in uh, a uh, bias towards Republicans, where Republicans could convert their fewer votes into more seats much more efficiently. Um, and what that's meant in Wisconsin in the last couple of elections is that even though the electorate has swung widely, so in 2010 they had a lot more votes for Republican assembly candidates in 2012, there were a lot more votes for Democratic Assembly candidates, and then in 2014 it went back to um, supporting Republican Assembly candidates. But even though those numbers swung wildly, right, the, a vote difference of 430,000 votes in, uh, in 2012 over 2010, a uh, huge margin in favor of the Democrats, uh, the numbers of seats uh, that they, the Republicans hold hasn't changed much at all. In fact, that 430,000-vote swing in favor of Democrats resulted in not one additional seat for Democrats, and they still had a 21-seat minority, even though they won overwhelmingly the vote statewide. And then the Republicans came back and won a pretty strong victory in 2014, but they only gained a couple of seats. And so what that shows is that the seats in the Assembly are basically immune to the election results, and the election results don't matter. You can go vote. Uh, for assembly candidates, but at the end of the day, the results have been baked in to the maps, um, and they've done that, uh, you know, very intentionally and and, and very, uh, frankly, very smartly. Right? They've they've packed Democratic voters into as few uh, districts as possible, and where Democratic voters aren't packed into, you know, districts where 80 or 90 percent of the voters are Democratic, uh, they've cracked them out into districts where they have no chance of winning. That means that you know, you can predict how many seats are going to go to the Republicans. And in fact, the Republicans did predict how many seats they'd have after the election, kind of regardless of what the vote total was. And they got it exactly right. And, you know, in, in the studies that our uh, experts have put forward, this is the most intentionally partisan and biased map we've seen in modern American political history, not just in Wisconsin, but across the 40 states that we've studied where data is available that you can make a comparison. And that's over the course of 50 years since the one-person, one-vote cases set the standard for how these maps should be drawn in the 60s, and, and we started using that standard in the early 1970s. So in 50 years, we haven't seen a, a more egregious and worse case uh, of partisan gerrymandering uh, where uh, one party is giving themselves an advantage uh, than we do here in Wisconsin today. That's a great explanation of what's been going on, and thank you. You know, I find it hard to believe that the same Republicans that, you know, got rid of open records here in Wisconsin would have been drawing these maps in secrecy and requiring legislators to sign um, confidentiality agreements, but but bygones. Uh here, I don't know if you're a longtime listener, Sachin. I'm, I'm just going to assume that you are of the Battleground Wisconsin podcast. 
Uh, uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Okay, excellent. Good, good. Well, we hope to have you back again soon with a victory here on this. But we like to break it down and be real here on the Battleground Podcast. And uh, what does this really mean? You know, let's take the Democrats and Republicans out of this for a minute. What's been happening with communities of color and how this has been affecting this, you know, sense of, you know, what have we been doing to the Latino and the African-American communities and how how is this um, – you know, diluting their voting power in Wisconsin. Yeah, so, you know, obviously we all wear multiple hats and work with different organizations. And in my uh, personal life here in, in Wisconsin and in my professional life, I work with a lot of folks who are working on issues that, that we care about, that the action cares about. And uh, as the director of the Fair Elections Project, we don't, I don't want to, you know, in that role take, take too many uh, positions on issues because we're trying to be nonpartisan uh, and we're really focused on uh, the process question here as opposed to the substantive thing. So let me say two, two things about that. One is the challenge in Wisconsin is that Republicans have been unfair to Democrats. But there are some states around the country where Democrats have been unfair to Republicans through partisan gerrymandering. And we actually, through the Fair Elections Project, want to end the practice there as well because we think it's anti small d democratic, right, that it's not fair uh, to the will of the voters. And in some cases that might not mean – changing who, which party is in power. So I'll give you an example. In Rhode Island, um, you know, Democrats have a pretty strong, substantial majority in state legislative elections, getting 60 percent or so uh, of the vote or more. Uh, but they hold something like 90 percent of the state legislative seats. And so because Democrats are able to convert their seats in Rhode Island much more efficiently uh, into legislative seats, they're able to convert their votes much more efficiently into legislative seats, um, they have an overwhelming majority. Uh, in, in fact, there's only like I think five uh, Republican senators in the in the Rhode Island Senate, which is a, a ridiculously small number. Now, the Republicans are unlikely to win the majority in Rhode Island uh, if we had fair maps, but they would have a lot more seats, and they would be much more at the table when it comes to making public policy. Um, and you know that would have at some level a moderating influence, and it would also it would also increase. The, the influence of general elections. And I think that's where we come back to Wisconsin, where we've really seen the struggle is that in Wisconsin politics, what matters now are primary elections. Uh, and generally, those go to the more extreme candidate. It is less likely the more moderate candidate is going to survive a primary election, either on the Republican or the Democratic side. And that's where all the political action is um, in Wisconsin politics this day. Most general elections for the state legislature don't matter very much because the uh, conclusions are foregone. Um, and so on policy, that has a tremendous impact because there isn't any fear from politicians acting uh, radically uh, to change public policy, to, to change Wisconsin tradition, uh, that there's going to be any consequence. So even if the people rise up and say, look, we don't want you to cut the University of Wisconsin system by $250 million, and we don't want you to make it harder to early vote, and we don't want you... Uh, to make it uh, so much easier uh, to get guns into people's hands when we have a real challenge with people uh, getting shot here in Milwaukee. We don't want you to make it harder to grow the solar industry or the wind industry. We don't want you uh, to turn away uh, Medicaid uh, dollars that are going to help uh, more Wisconsin citizens get uh, health coverage. These are all things where the public has a very clear view and has voted consistently in referenda, has voted consistently uh, in who they vote for for the legislature to say, I want candidates, uh, we want as citizens candidates who are going to do the right thing. Um, and yet uh, the legislature does the polar opposite of that, and it's because they 
represent such a minority of the minority uh, at this point, but yet their majorities in the legislature are baked in. And so I think that's been the impact uh, around, the, uh, around the state. Uh, it's something we see increasingly around the country, which is why we're in federal court trying to set a U.S. constitutional standard so that this practice of partisan gerrymandering, of rejecting the will of the voters, can kind of be stopped across the board. And we can see an American political system that is much more responsive to the will of the people. Just a quick follow-up, Sachin. Redistricting uh, has been done this way since back to the early 19th century. You know, this is how Martin Van Buren and folks like that uh, got famous. And gerrymandering itself is named after a guy in New York politics who was especially good at, 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 at this. And so it became gerrymandering. And the courts have always given deference to political parties. And so it's been done for decades and decades, and over a couple centuries, even though it's highly undemocratic. It's about politicians choosing their voters, uh, not the other way around. It seems to me that one big change is the scientific precision of it that now it's possible with voting records to literally cook the books much more effectively than before when they were really guessing, doing with guessing and figuring things out with pencil and paper. And, and then the second thing is simply, I think you're saying that this case is especially egregious, that as egregious as redistricting has been and gerrymandering through American history, this one's unbelievably bad and could set another precedent. Yeah, I think that that's right. I mean, we try to distinguish the concept of gerrymandering from partisan gerrymandering. So the, the act of gerrymandering is to draw... You know, maps that uh, intend to produce some sort of outcome. Sometimes that, those outcomes are actually desirable. In fact, you know, the Voting Rights Act requires us to gerrymander, requires us to draw uh, uh, maps that are perhaps a little less contiguous and, you know, that, that, that address the need for communities of interest in order to ensure that uh, uh, people who've been traditionally unrepresented, especially uh, people of color, uh, do have the opportunity to win seats. You know, you could call that good gerrymandering. What we're talking about here is uh, partisan gerrymandering that is the pure exercise of uh, political power by political party. And the tradition for that is, is much less uh, than you would think. I mean, there's this kind of assumption in the political system that, you know, everybody does it and they do it egregiously. Well, that, you know, we've studied, again, you, you, can't, you can't look at the pre-one-person, one-vote one era um, and make um, mathematical or scientific comparisons because districts weren't population equal across the country until after the series of cases in the 1960s that were the one-person, one-vote cases. And so really starting with the 1970 census, the 71 redistricting and the 1972 state legislative elections. So looking at the last 50 years, looking at those elections uh, and those um, redistricting plans, uh, it, the practice has gotten much worse. And people, you know, people say, well, the Democrats did it in Wisconsin before the Republicans did. Well, that, that just isn't true. So the last uh, four uh, rounds of redistricting, in fact, every round of redistricting uh, that happened in the one-person, one-vote era in Wisconsin was either cooperative between the parties or the parties couldn't agree and the maps were drawn fairly by the federal courts and imposed. So in 2011, it was the first time in modern American Wisconsin history, modern, I'm sorry, modern Wisconsin political history, that one party drew the maps. You can't say the, Repo the Democrats did it or would have done it, because they didn't. It didn't happen. Uh, only the Republicans have done this in Wisconsin. And around the country, the math tells us that it's getting much, much worse very, very fast, and that in 2011 uh, it was a radical departure from the past in terms of how not only frequent uh, it was to see uh, big gaps,
gaps in uh, efficiency between the two parties, but also uh, the intensity of those gaps has gotten deeper and deeper and deeper uh, on average. So we're not suggesting that Wisconsin is the only terrible example. We think that there are lots of terrible examples, maybe up to as many as 10 across the country in the current state legislative maps. But in the context of how many maps we're talking about in history that would violate the constitutional test that we're proposing, uh, it isn't actually that many. It's a very small minority of maps. Um, and we do happen to be the most egregious example by the test of, you know, how bad was it at the outset of when the map was implemented. I, I appreciate the, the historical context, but I would, I would say that, you know, we're really in a unique time. Um, and, and you're right, the scientific pre precision, uh, the computer modeling has absolutely had an impact on the effectiveness. Uh, but there's also been a change. I don't want to set aside. There's been a change in the political culture in Wisconsin and around the country. And, and it, it just, you know, I mean, look, I'm going to make the observation that the last super popular Republican governor was generally seen as a moderate and is uh, now historically especially seen as a moderate in comparison to what we have now. And the Democratic governor who succeeded him for two terms, uh, not counting the couple of years of a lieutenant governor who ascended, uh, was also generally seen as a moderate. Um, and the legislature had great consensus around things like investing in the university and investing in our health care programs and investing in our um, infrastructure. These are things that, that were not uh, nearly as contentious as they are uh, today. It, it's just unimaginable that even the Republican Party would have stood for a $250 million cut to the University of Wisconsin system had there been any sort of accountability uh, to the voters, who obviously reject that idea in great numbers. So uh, I, I don't want to um, excuse the activities of the current legislative majority in uh, uh, Wisconsin, because what they've done is a radical departure from the past. So this is going in front of the court May 24th through 27th. We will look forward to a fabulous uh, outcome from that particular ruling, and hopefully we can have you come back on then after that ruling to talk about what this is going to mean moving forward for Wisconsin. That'd be great. Let me plug the website, fairelectionsproject.org, uh, and you can sign the petition there and get on our email list. You can also make a contribution to help us get the word out uh, and to help pay the, the cost. The lawyers are very generously uh, donating their time in, in, in hopes of uh, getting uh, lawyers' fees awarded at the, at the end, but uh, at this point are working for free. But we do have lots of expenses around the, the lawsuit. Uh, and uh, we encourage you to go find us on Facebook at Wisconsin Fair Elections Project, WI Fair Elections Project, and give us a like and comment on the news stories and other information we post there. And Hope to stay connected. Absolutely. Well, Sachin, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time, and we look forward to hearing back from you in the beginning of June with a good ruling. Great. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me, and have a great day. You too. So that was a great update from Sachin, and again, I really do hope that he comes back you know, toward the beginning of June with some good news for us. Staying along the theme of legal things happening in Wisconsin these days, uh, we have some relatively good news coming out of the federal appellate court that says that a judge, and not just any judge, but it ends up being U.S. District Judge Lynn Edelman, our friend, must look at a law lawsuit that has been brought forth by the ACLU that challenges 
the voter ID law in Wisconsin and how it applies to folks who face really significant obstacles in actually obtaining a photo ID. Um, this is this has election protection geeks around the uh, state and country, such as myself, uh, really excited that perhaps there is some sort of um, test for the burden of proof that, you know, our democracy actually should be accessible to everybody. Robert, what do you think about this ruling? Well, it it just brings up that there's, despite what the U.S. Supreme Court did when it still had a conservative majority, which is just refused to look at the case, uh, and despite what the Walker folks and the Republicans say about it, it's all fine, everyone can get an ID easily enough, we know uh, as from election experts such as Arnita Johnson at Citizen Action and also from a lot of news coverage that there are people who just have issues. There are people who were born in the South when they really didn't do birth certificates in any official way and were, were birthed by midwives, as most well, African-Americans were. Vote, then. Right, or where there's a, a slight error in the name one way or the other, right? Can't uh, vote. And so uh, what, the, what the case actually does is say you have to look at whether there are people there, there is a, uh, that literally cannot reasonably expected to get an ID and pass all their requirements or the two columns of things you have to have in order to be able to vote and to get your ID. And so, um, you know, I think that it, what it could end up doing is creating uh, some kind of exception to a hardship exception for photo ID, which would be good. Uh, quite frankly. Um, and so that would be advanced to dis to reenfranchise some people is always a good thing because no one should ever be disenfranchised. Uh, it probably won't deal with some of the other egregious issues such as uh, the way students are literally being discriminated against. They uh, shouldn't vote anyway. Because Republicans would prefer them not to vote, as Jonah says, uh, because they might vote against them. And mm. so... Uh, so this is positive, but I don't think it, I think it doesn't likely, well, I don't know. I guess if it overturns the whole photo ID, then they have to correct it uh, for, for, for people who are, are special cases, for people who simply, no matter what they do, have trouble uh, meeting these requirements. What we really need to do is overturn the whole darn thing because it's a poll tax and it's designed to disenfranchise people and it has no Robert. factual basis. And the fact that, that right-wing judges somehow find in the Constitution, I love how original intent means what we want to happen. Uh, I can somehow, you know, justify this while we run around saying that that uh, corporate CEOs and multi-billionaires have an unfettered right to pollute the airwaves. That's the First Amendment, but there's apparently no right to vote. Well, maybe they could add in here that corporations actually get a vote when they rewrite this law. Look, I mean, this is this is not a. Uh, I agree with Robert. We need to overturn this horribly awful, strictest in the nation law. Um, but this is at least some sort of glimmer of hope that we are potentially going to be able to reenfranchise some folks. There was a story floating around shortly after the April 5th election here about a gentleman in Milwaukee who took three different forms of ID to the polls to vote. Clearly, he couldn't have forged all of those and none of them were on the acceptable list for um, Wisconsin's voter ID law, so he was unable to actually cast his ballot. That's that's not right, um, you know. And I, I think that the Wisconsin DOJ has already issued their statement about this that they think that they're going to prevail. They're very confident because oh, remember that whole part about how we'll give you a free ID from um, the DMV, but you can't get that free ID if you don't have the supporting documents. Is what they're failing to recognize there. So, um, you know, this this gives us something to organize around in face of a very draconian, horrible law. 
So with that, we're going to continue on our theme of legal challenges here in Wisconsin. And uh, there was yet another relatively exciting ruling uh, last Friday that the Wisconsin right to work law, if folks will remember last March, there were another round of not quite as significant, but still um, really strong protests at the Capitol while we watched yet another um, building block of our pillar of our workers uh community get taken down and Wisconsin passed right to work and a Dane County circuit judge deemed it unconstitutional last week. Robert, what does this mean? Well, (laughs) it should mean that worker rights are being uh, reestablished in the state, that workers have a right to organize themselves at work and have a democratic decision about whether they have a functioning union that has real power to bargain or not. But it doesn't mean Um, that, does it? But we got to call it so-called right to work because the framing experts say that that we make it popular, we call it right to work. So the so-called right to work, though, I just want to say about that, that one of the beautiful things about language, if you read modern language philosophy, modern, I mean, the last 150 years is is that uh, the the, uh, signifiers in language are arbitrary and they can come to mean good things and bad things, the same word. So liberal could be a great word in the 50s and 60s and then be turned into a bad word by Republicans, for example. No child left behind actually is a bad word with a lot of people, despite being a whole series of good words. And so I think that's happening with right to work, but it's good to call it so-called right to work or fraudulent right to work or alleged right to work, etc. So this uh, is, it's nice to have a court ruling like this, obviously, and it it always annoys the Walker administration tremendously when their their iron authority is temporarily broken. I like doing that. The problem is they've gerrymandered the state Supreme Court. And <laughs> yes, what's amazing is... You have legal analysts, like you had a Marquette law professor saying, it's a good ruling, it's the right ruling, it will be overturned. There's no chance that, in other words, we don't even believe this state Supreme Court will do an, do an independent analysis of the law. We know that it's the right-wing position, so therefore they will sustain it uh, five to two. Hold on, hold on. Newly elected Justice Rebecca Bradley, she'll definitely give this due process, correct? A distinguished jurist. <laughs> Uh, look, I mean, no. And that's the problem. And that destroys people's faith in the courts. The courts become politicians in robes because that's what they are. And so the fact that there's no chance in heck that they will sustain uh, this lawsuit is deeply uh, concerning. And it, it undermines legitimacy of our government and the rule of law in this state. So, you know, I remember I was actually up in the Capitol during the so-called right to work fight last year and so this you know it gives you a glimmer of hope and then only to be yanked away when you realize that we still live in our current wisconsin but that's why we all do the great work that we try and do every day to take back our state it's like you know looking at southern court storing jim crow like are they going to do the right thing you know there's no proof that this person committed any crime (laughs) up guilty right or innocent based on whether they're black or white you know, in the Gilded Age, early 20th century, you know, the 14th Amendment, which was supposed to protect the equal rights of all people and African-Americans in our country, was changed to mean protecting corporations and not protecting African-Americans in any way. So that's the kind of thing uh, we have here. So I wonder if they'll even hold a full hearing, because remember when they uh, sustained Act 10, they actually uh, rejected the case in the uh, in the hearing process to determine whether to take the case, yeah. and therefore never fully briefed and f- never fully... Uh, discussed the constitutionality of Act 10 in its own terms. They simply unilaterally in that hearing ruled it, ruled that it was constitutional throughout the case. So 
that just means that the workers need to rise up again. And with workers rising up, as everybody knows, we record on Thursdays. And today, this Thursday, the 14th of April, is actually another historic day in the fight for 15. The the fast food workers and other industry folks are across the country organizing today in a national day of action to say that they need a livable wage and that that livable wage is $15 an hour. So this has been a campaign that has literally put uh, some of the lowest wage workers in our country on the map, so to speak, because they were invisible. And uh, we just took for granted that somehow you can pay poverty wages to people who work in the fast food industry and other industries. And this is the kind of job that our economy is creating right now uh, with uh, someone like Scott Walker at the helm with no plan to change that. So if we're not going to create different jobs, we need to do that too. We need to unrig the economy. Then the least we can do is make these jobs pay a decent amount so that if someone works full time is not still on poverty and still having to rely upon food stamps. Uh, and 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 badger care and other and other public support, and so you know this this strike has been very effective in raising the issue. And we have states across the country, like California, New York, showing the way with the fifteen dollar minimum wage. A city started not happening soon in Wisconsin until no, we no, take Wisconsin not. back. Uh, so this has already been a very effective movement. The problem is labor laws are so stacked against workers. These workers have no real right to organize, and so this has got to remain as a public campaign uh, designed to to put these workers front and center, tell their stories, and to begin to change the law, to change the wage floor through the law rather than through collective bargaining. But one day these workers should all be in powerful unions. Because let's face it, we tend to think that the economy naturally creates good jobs and decides based on merit what are the good jobs, what are the bad jobs. Well, you know, 100 years ago, manufacturing jobs weren't good jobs. Not only were they poverty wage jobs, you were likely to die in them or be maimed in them. And then there was no social support system, social awesome. service system. So the widow and the children were out on the street because they couldn't afford rent anymore because their the breadwinner had been maimed or killed. And so the union movement made these family supporting jobs. The next stage of the union movement is not only to... Uh, start to structure the economy on behalf of working people to throw out these trade agreements, weed act, things like that. Uh, but it's also to make the jobs we have that can't be exported good jobs people can make a living on. And there is nothing unnatural about about these jobs being good jobs. It's a social decision. Uh, uh, and it also is, a, is an allowing um, big corporations to stack the deck. So they create this franchise system, Jorna, when then they, the franchisees rightly say, well, in the contract, if I raise the wages, I would like lose my shirt and I'd go out of business. Well, guess what? McDonald's Corporation needs the franchisees. If it doesn't have them, it doesn't have its spigot of our money up to their corporate headquarters. And so if you change the rules of the game so that so that franchisees could not make a living unless they sweetened the deal for them at, at McDonald's Corporate and Burger King Corporate and Wendy's Corporate and KFC Corporate and all the rest, they'd do it because if the franchisees went under freaking McDonald's and KFC and Burger King would go under too. Well, now we know where Robert gets his fast food as he rattles off that particular group of <laughs> restaurants. I just watch too much commercials. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mention Jorna's probably favorite, Chipotle. I do. I do love me some <laughs> Chipotle. I'm not going to lie. Um, speaking, of, speaking of jobs that people want and jobs that people don't want, apparently this week, Paul Ryan had to once again say... 
that he does not want to be president, that he will not run, he will not be part of this brokered convention that I can't wait to watch on TV, uh, and that he, again, denied that this is about him. <coughs> I think he doth protest too much. Um, but I think that the actual key phrase that he said in this press conference of denial, his, I don't know, 18th press conference of denial, this is getting a little bit like the votes against Obamacare. Um, he said that, quote, I believe that you should only choose from a person who has actually participated in the primary. What he didn't say there was the winner of the primary season, which could be Donald Trump. And we do know that Donald Trump and Paul Ryan, they're not besties. Robert, do you think that Paul Ryan's actually going to get engaged in this? Well, Paul Ryan is more popular if he doesn't want it. Right. right. And so he needs to keep protesting whether he wants it or not. Such a sacrificial lamb, that Paul Ryan. So there's only one answer here, right? Of course, Ted Cruz is happy because Ted Cruz wants to see, seem as the reasonable alternative <laughs> only in the only in joked. the 2016 in the modern Republican Party <laughs> would Ted Cruz be seen as reasonable. Uh, that's why Donald Trump is Ted Cruz's best friend. So we'll see. They have a mess on their hands. The establishment, I'm not clear if their establishment is unified. It's, it's very good at getting unified and whether it has a game plan. I think it wants to see whether Trump gets over the magic number or not before it decides what it's going to do. Uh, and then there's, and you know, this stuff about someone who ran. Bobby Jindal. Bobby Jindal, Jim Gilmore. Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham, exactly. Maybe, but, maybe Jim Webb. You never know. Yeah, he ran, Toss him ran in for there. the other party. I know, but, but yeah. you know, whatever. It's, it's, it's what my thesis advisor used to call an embarrassment of riches. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> so it's, it's fun to watch, but it's probably going to create, I mean, a, a crazy outcome. Uh, I think they have – what they're trying to navigate is this. If it looks like it's stolen from Mr. Trump, as New York Times calls him, or Mr. Cruz. Yeah, it's so hard. Right? There was like the Mr. and Mrs., right? Uh then there's going to be this rebellion that divides the party. So they need somehow the party needs to come unified back to Paul and say, Paul, please save us. And we'll see if that actually happens. He is quite the savior. That is for sure. We have one other topic I forgot to mention, and that is, uh, you know, Wisconsin made some progress this week, believe it or not. Uh, we started publishing crime data again on a state website. Other states have been doing that. They've been down for three years. But then one little thing missing uh, from the website, Jorna. Uh, any no data, any on, data on No crime. data on race. Oh. And so, well. you know, we're not going to know. We have the highest African-American incarceration rate in the country, higher than, any, than Texas, Oklahoma, any of those places, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. But we're not going to know uh, at this point. We don't need to know. It's a color. It's a colorblind website, apparently. Absolutely, as it obviously should be, Robert. <laughs> oh my God, I can't anymore. Sometimes with Wisconsin. Uh, so before we head out and find out what exciting things Robert is going to do this weekend, we would like to welcome Anna Dvorak, an organizer here with Citizen Action, to rock the mic for a moment about the radioactive project that Citizen Action is undertaking. Anna, what's going on? Yeah, so we have talked about this a little bit in the past, and actually in the last podcast, uh, spent quite a bit of time uh, talking about how, you know, just the role that right-wing radio has played in the outcome of our elections. Uh, we've been arguing for 
throughout uh, this campaign that our organizing cooperative is working on, that there would be no Scott Walker, there would be no Rebecca Bradley without the right wing talk radio monopoly that we have in our state, particularly um, or specifically in the Milwaukee media markets and in the Fox Valley. Um, and you can even see with the election results uh, for for Ted Cruz, I mean, they rallied their troops. Uh, you can pretty much overlay the maps of, you know, where where the, uh, uh, you know, the talk radio hosts are in Milwaukee and the Fox Valley and where Ted Cruz, uh, you know, got the most votes. Um, it's, it, you know, it's it's really um, harming our democracy and and influencing our elections. And actually, uh, Jerry Bader uh, knows about our radioactive campaign to take on uh, right wing radio. And he he said, you know, he's he's addressing our comment. You know, there would be no Scott Walker, or Rebecca Radley without without right wing talk radio. And he says, I mean, he agrees. He's like, this is a direct quote. He says it is true. Without conservative talk radio, Governor Scott Walker likely doesn't survive his recall, and Justice Rebecca Bradley would have lost her election last week. I mean, so so he even admits how much of an influence that he and Charlie Sykes and others have on our elections. And we want to take this on. We want to do something about it. And then um, that's our radioactive campaign. And what's what we're doing right now is is uh, Friday. April 15th. That's tomorrow. Um, we, we record this on Thursdays. Um, it's today. It's today. It, it, it would be today. If you're listening to this on Friday, it's today. We are launching a 30-day drive. We've already raised uh, $14,000 to support this project, but we need to prove... Yeah, we need to prove that this is what the people of Wisconsin want and need. Um, and so we just need to raise $6,000 more dollars. 6,000. Um, and we can do this in 30 days. So if you believe that, that this is a problem and you want to do something about it, please, please get on your computers and donate or mail in a check to Citizen Action, 221 South 2nd Street, Suite 300, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We'll, we'll have that. Yeah. Brian, you can put that up on the website so people don't have to write this down really quick. But please contribute if you think, if you think this is a problem you want. You want things to change. And it's, of course, not really true that $20,000 is going to vanquish right-wing radio. So this is the seed money, mm -hmm. right, to then run a full crowdfunding campaign to, to hire a full-time person to work with all the members called Right-Wing Radio Accountable to explore owning our own radio. And so this is the seed money to run the campaign to then have permanent capacity, and we have to be this in this for the long haul. Exactly, exactly. You weren't entirely fair to Jerry Bader, though, Anna, because he said that the reason right-wing radio was needed in order to save Scott Walker and Rebecca Bradley is because of the evil liberal media that dominates the state. Where? where, right. where? So who knew that the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, the Wisconsin State Journal, that the, the TV news, that the Gannett Papers were these incredible liberal powerhouses Bastions. that were taking down all conservative candidates. Who Pillars knew? Who knew? <laughs> yeah, actually, in that same that same blog post that Jerry posted, he was like, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel tried its damnedest to defeat Rebecca Bradley and failed. Every conservative talk show host in Wisconsin harshly criticized them for that effort. They're, they're trying to argue the case that the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel is is some liberal, you know, bastion. It's and very New York Times esque. Yes, yes. Even though they've they've endorsed Scott Walker three times, right? So, 
Um, and they endorsed, I believe, John Kasich, that bastion of liberalism. Gosh. <laughs> yeah. I feel like the Journal Sentinels should just go back into the kitchen. They're done putting up yard signs. We're yeah. all good. I really didn't understand their endorsements. I mean, they endorsed what? Like John Kasich for, for president and, uh, uh, you know, Tom Barrett for mayor and Chris Abley for, for Milwaukee County executive. And there's really something for everyone to hate on the political spectrum in that, right? Like, I I just don't understand. Well, just to be clear, and I think that they're actual journalists, so I don't want to bash them, but the the folks who run the the Journal Sentinel editorial page are conservative Republican people. I mean, they're not vile in the sense that talk radio is, where they're screaming epithets and not allowing the other side to be on the editorial page ever, anything like that. But they are, I mean, I'm not going to even, you can look them up and, and quite frankly, it's well known in the city that, and this is not a, a sin on their part, it's just the way they are. They are conservative guys. So to say that they somehow are leading some liberal jihad against poor Rebecca Bradley and Scott Walker is, is laughable and absurd. But here's the thing, right-wing radio needs to pep- perpetrate that myth. And what there really are is, is that they don't like facts. You see, the right-wing conservative mind hates facts that contradicts itself. In fact, what conservative radio is about is about justifying the, the emotional position they want to have and giving all their listeners reasons to believe what is counterfactual, like there's no global warming, for example. And so what they don't like about the, media, the, the mainstream media is not that they're liberal, that's what they call it, but that's code for they put out facts we don't want people to know. So I don't like facts usually either because they're just a hindrance. But the fact is Radioactive is an awesome project and you should visit the Citizen Action website and you should come to the event on Friday today and you should do all these awesome things to support Anna and her work. And Brian will post links so you'll have easy access from the podcast. And there'll be links and there'll be awesomeness. Um, So with that, uh, Robert, in 10 words or less, what are you doing this weekend? I have no plans. That was amazing. Perfect. Uh, I myself will be at the Midwest Horse Fair. It is a horse fair, not a horse show. So if anybody's in the Madison area, come on down to the Alliant Energy Center to see all sorts of horses of all walks of life. And with that, I want to thank all of our listeners. I hope to be your hostess with the mostest again next week on the Battleground Wisconsin podcast. Have a great weekend.